0: Your dreams can be your reality. You all, time isn't real. Okay, that is fucking crazy. Spirituality, manifestation, travel, money, entrepreneurship. Welcome to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm your host, Chelsea Rife. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm your host, Chelsea Rife, and I have a question for you. Have you ever met someone and you're like, wait, I also went to that school or I also lived there. I also did that. Wait, I did that too. And then you're like, are we the same person? I feel like everyone has run into that scenario where you're like, literally, did we just live the same life in a different timeline? Because that's what it feels like. That's exactly how it felt talking to today's guest, which is Samantha Daly. Samantha and I connected, and I was actually on her podcast a few months ago on Makeshift Happen Podcast. Love that name. And when we were talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, we both studied abroad. We both got the travel bug from studying abroad. We both studied abroad in Spain. She actually did what I would have loved to do is stay in Spain, met her partner in Spain, ended up living there for years, and she only recently came back home. And she also started her business abroad in Spain. I was like, Oh my God. I feel like you lived out a life, like part of a life that I had. And then I kind of veered off and did my own thing, but then came back to living abroad, also launched my business abroad, started everything abroad, and then eventually moved back to the States. So it was just so interesting to have this conversation and realize that, you know, a lot more people than you think start their businesses abroad And I think it's quite challenging and not talked about enough because you're literally in a foreign country where you either don't speak the language or don't have a lot of connections and you're just starting everything from square one. So this conversation is really interesting because the first half of the episode, we talk a lot about travel what it's like to not only live abroad, but adjust to the holidays, adjust to the cultural differences, dating someone that doesn't speak the same language as you. So if you've ever wondered, how do people do this? How do people just pick up and move abroad and then set up their life? I think you're going to find very first half of this episode really interesting. Then the second part of the episode, we talk a lot about business. So Samantha is a life and mindset coach, and she's a business mentor and podcast host. So I talked to her about raising prices, about structuring things, about how to really understand what to do when, you know, you feel like you want to raise your prices, but you're like, oh my gosh, I don't feel like this is the work or the value, or I don't know what to do. And we really get into it. You guys know, I love to ask people specifics. I really love to unpack a thought. And that's what the second half of this episode is, is a lot about business money and coaching. So Samantha's journey into the world of self-development actually began after she graduated college. She decided to take the untraditional path by turning down her corporate job offers and moving to Europe. You know, I love that. She packed her life into two suitcases and left everything behind to explore the world, expand her mind and find her purpose. Now she's a professional coach, and she helps women all over the world rewire their subconscious, improve their relationships, attract love and money, and build their dream businesses by empowering them with elite mindset tools and powerful daily rituals. Her podcast, Makeshift Happen, is so incredible honestly, if you're feeling like you need a boost of mindset help or self-esteem boost or understanding the mind and everything that goes with daily rituals, you're going to absolutely love makeshift happen. So get ready. I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode or at least be entertained. We, We really open up about what it's like living abroad and dating a foreign person. So it's a really fun conversation. Before we dive in, I'm actually running a masterclass tomorrow, Wednesday, March 23rd at noon Eastern time, all about how to launch a podcast with strategy and soul. So if you've been wanting to launch a podcast, but you're like, okay, I have an idea, but I literally don't know what to do after that. And when you Google how to launch a podcast, you're getting a bunch of results from tech bros that are telling you to launch like three episodes a week and optimize absolutely everything and you're like, that's not for me, then this masterclass is probably for you. We're going to talk about different ways to launch a podcast without having to do a weekly one hour episode. I'm going to walk you through what you actually need, like the tools and resources. We're going to walk through case studies, as well as what podcasting could actually do for you. So whether you want to launch a podcast as a hobby or a creative outlet, or as a business owner, we're going to talk about all the different ways you can do that. It's totally free and you can find the link in my show notes or the link in my bio on Instagram at Chelsea Reif. And if you can't make it, there will be a replay sent out and there's going to be prizes. I'm giving away one 60 minute podcast coaching consult, which is valued at $500. I do not do one-off consults at all. So this is going to someone that attends live. We're going to do a little quiz at the end and whoever gets the answer, right? will get that consult. And then I'm also giving away a podcast launch plan that was built on notion. Notion is a really awesome software, and I created a pretty incredible launch plan in there that has places to actually map out your episodes. It has video tutorials in there, checklists. I mean, you could literally launch a podcast just from having this document. And again, this will be given away tomorrow in the masterclass for anybody who attends live. It's at 12 noon. It will run for an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And again, there's going to be prizes and a replay sent if you can't make it. Link in show notes, link in bio, and of course DM me if you have any questions. All right, without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Samantha Daly. All right, everybody, I'm here with Samantha Daly. And I am very excited to talk to you because I feel like we live very parallel lives and we're almost switching lives right now. Last time we talked, I was on your podcast and you were in Spain and I was in the United States. Now, I'm in the United States, you're in the United States, and I want to move to Spain. So I feel like we are literally living like a Freaky Friday movie, and we're just switching lives and living parallel. But tell us about your move from Spain to the U.S. What prompted this?
1: Yeah, especially because we're like trying to move to Florida also. It's just like so ironic. We're like totally doing a swap here, which is funny. Um but yeah, the move was crazy. The move, I talked about this on my podcast, but it was like one of the biggest manifestations of my life just because everything involved in terms of like moving internationally in a pandemic and all that kind of stuff created a lot of obstacles, I guess you could say, for us to, to get here. And Yeah, it was just like a a wild ride. We basically found out that we would be able to move like logistically um, in December, like two weeks before Christmas. And then we moved by January 14th. So we basically were just like, oh, we're moving, decided. And then within three and a half weeks, we were packed up all our entire apartment in Madrid sold a bunch of our belongings, donated a bunch of stuff, packed all of our stuff into just three suitcases each. Like my partner had three suitcases and I had three suitcases and that's all that we own now. (laughs) Just like got on the plane, moved here. I, you know, made my dog like a service dog so he could fly with us. Like there was so much shit that had to happen for us to get here. But yeah, then there was some, some, a lot of guidance in that as well. Like when I was uh, in Costa Rica back in early December, I was on a retreat, and I was like really using that time and space of disconnection from work and everything to focus on what I wanted the next year to look like, and to think about what my manifestations were going to be and what I was really calling in, what my soul was desiring. And I, I just like had this deep desire to like come home and move to the U.S. and I knew or I, yeah, I knew at that point that it was kind of impossible logistically with everything given, but I decided to ask for it anyway and put it out there anyway and, you know, call it in. And on that trip, I started seeing like seven, seven, sevens everywhere. So it was an angel number that was kind of guiding me throughout that trip with that intention of, I want to manifest being able to move home to the States. And then when we actually got on our plane, well, Before that, the lawyer that we had to call to figure out like immigration stuff, I called like three lawyers and they all kind of like gave me a no or they weren't going to be available in time. And the last one that I called said, no, we don't do that, but I can forward you like to someone who does and she was like would you like me to give you their number and i was like yeah totally thank you so much so i'm ready to write down the number and she's giving me the phone number and the last 3 digits of the phone number were 777 so i was like this is going to be our guy like this is going to be the person that's going to help us and it was and that's when we got the confirmation like yes this is possible there is a way to do it like we can go ahead so then we started packing everything and when we got on the plane We sat down and like the little brochure in like the back pocket that, you know, all the, there's like the airplane stuff and the security guide and stuff. It was like 777 because that was the type of plane that we were on. And I was just like, oh my God, this is so wild. And the day after we landed, a huge snowstorm came in and all flights were canceled into North Carolina, which is where we were flying into because we're in the South. So anytime there's snow, it's like everything is just completely canceled like less than 24 hours after we landed. So it was just like a lot of like synchronicities and alignment and like near misses for things. So yeah, it was a journey.
0: Wow. I want to backtrack a little bit because you obviously at some point were desiring to go to Spain and live in Madrid. So can you take us back to what prompted your decision to go to Spain in the first place?
1: Yeah, So the reason that I originally decided to go to Spain, well, the first time that I went to Spain was, as you know, for a study abroad, similar to your story, right? So when I was in college, I was studying Spanish as part of my degree. And so I did a study abroad semester there, which is when I met my partner. Um, we met on a dating app. I ran around town with him under like the Spanish city lights, like drinking wine, like very Lizzie McGuire movie. And it just like the whole thing felt like a fairy tale. And I was like, wow, this is such a story. The initial reason for that was like, do it for the story. You know, when you're in college, you're kind of like doing a lot of things just for the story. So I was like, do it for the story. Um, and I thought that's where it was going to end. Like when I left, we said goodbye and I was like, wow, I'm like never going to see this guy again. This is so crazy. And then I went back to school and I finished my last year and I got into a corporate internship that summer between my junior and senior year. And I was like, dude, is this like what I'm going to do forever is like sit at this cubicle and like just be in an office like this. And I, I just had that like massive like realization of like, I don't think I like want to do this. Like, I don't think I'm maybe, maybe it's just not now. Maybe it's never, I don't really know. But all I know is like, I do not want to do this. So then I started thinking really seriously about how I could get back to Spain, Uh, especially because we had continued our relationship kind of like long distance at that point. We weren't expecting to, but we stayed in contact. We realized like we Had a lot of feelings for each other, and we didn't want to just like end it there. So I was like, okay, I have to get back to Spain. So that's when I started researching, you know, teaching programs and things that could help get me over there with like a student visa or whatever it may be. And so I initially went there uh, with the idea that, you know, I'm going to go there for a year. I'm going to teach English in the schools. I'm going to travel. I'm going to continue practicing my Spanish, get fluent, date this guy, at least from the same city you know, and just see what happens. And that one year turned into over six.
0: Okay. This is so interesting because again, we have such parallel lives where my ex, I also met abroad and it was like, do it for the story. Who cares? Fun weekend hookup. And then as we started to get to know each other, we're like, wait, we actually have real feelings for each other. And then you hit this crossroads of, okay, we could continue seeing each other, but one of us is going to have to move to a country that we're not familiar with, or we're just going to have to call it quits right here and go our separate ways. So it sounds like the situation you were in was, okay, Like I'll probably have to move to Spain. So can you walk us through that decision and thought process of like, holy shit, I'm going to move to Spain to be with this guy?
1: Yeah. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like leaving your whole life behind to move to a foreign country for someone that you I mean it's not that you barely know them but you just kind of met them like what we knew each other for like 3 months you know so yeah it was it was really wild but i'm a sagittarius so and i have my north node in sagittarius as well which is like that's the direction that my soul wants to go in is like travel and adventure and all that kind of stuff so i felt I felt really compelled naturally to do things like that anyway. I think that's the reason why I chose to go to school out of state and why I wanted to study abroad to begin with. And so the idea of more adventure and more travel and more Europe life was already exciting to me. You know, when you get back from study abroad, there's like that weird period where you're like, oh my God, <laughs> you're like in the twilight zone of like, what is life? Where am I? <laughs> like, and you're trying to readjust to American life and like figure out what you want out of life and what you care about because you've been so expanded over the past couple of months that you're just questioning everything. So that definitely played a big role as well. But I think the biggest thing was probably actually telling people that that's what I was going to do. Because in my head, I was like, this is going to be amazing, and I'm excited by it. But the idea of telling other people that I was going to graduate from college with an amazing degree and then like, you know, do nothing with it and decline my job offers and go and earn like a, like a poverty wage in Spain to teach English to like fourth graders for like, mainly for a guy, right? Like everybody knew that that was a huge part of the story, Even though there were other things that I could say, you know, it's the experience, it's more travel, it's, you know, getting fluent in the language, like this is going to benefit me on my resume. Yeah, all that stuff is relevant, but like the real reason was obviously love, you know? So that was probably the trickiest part was telling people and having to deal with what opinions were going to come back.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How was that? Like, were people like, why are you following a guy? Don't give up on your dreams. Or were people actually supportive?
1: All of my friends at the time, at least to my face, (laughs) I don't know what they were saying behind my back, but I would assume that they were being genuine. But a lot of my, most of my friends at the time were like really supportive. And they like thought it would be an amazing experience, you know, like, yes, you should do this, like, kind of like YOLO energy, you know, like, We're 22 years old and we have no commitments. We have you know, nothing holding us down. We're not tied to a job. We're not tied to a career path yet. We're not tied to a city. We don't have an apartment or rent or anything. It was like this very special moment in life when I graduated college where there's not one single string attached to you. And so it was like a perfect moment. So a lot of my friends were super supportive of it, but my parents were definitely like, I think they were just scared for me. You know, that's the way that a lot of projections come across in life is when people are projecting their own ideas or opinions onto you. It's usually coming from a place of fear, which is rooted in the fact that they love you and they want the best for you and they don't want you to throw away, uh, you know, a good opportunity or part of your future for something silly. But I had to really trust that I know myself best and to lead with my own inner guidance rather than, you know, doing what was the safe option or what people would have thought was, you know, more like, I guess, smarter.
0: Yeah. I really want to double click on this concept, what you just said of people's projections are often they, they come off to you as, you know, you want to defend yourself and show them that you have something to prove and like just back off. But when you look at the deeper motive, it, it usually is love and safety. And I ran into this too. When I moved abroad to Australia, I was making six figures at my corporate American job, living in a high rise in Chicago, like balling out, and I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to live in Australia, and people's immediate perception was she's throwing this all away because she just wants to go find a guy in Australia. She wants to find love. She she's giving this all up. And I kept having my mom push back on the timeline, and she was like, why don't you wait a year? Why don't you wait two years? And finally I just sat her down and asked her, I was like, what is this pushback? Like you know I love to travel. Why do you keep like pr- like prompting me to want to go later? And she was like, "Chelsea, there is this mom alarm that goes off that you'll understand when you're a mom and you hear your daughter just saying things like, I'm going to go to a country where I don't know anybody, I don't have a job, I don't have any plan and your alarm bells go off. You're just like, how I don't want her to end up homeless on the streets living with people she's, you know, desperate to live with just to have a home over her head." And that made me more empathetic to her position. I was like, oh, it's not like she thinks I'm stupid and I can't handle living abroad. She's just thinking of the finances and the fact of like, what if I get stuck over there and I don't have money and I don't find a job? And it completely changed my perception of her worry. So for you saying that whole thing of, you know, this is actually just rooted in love and and safety. How did you get to that headspace? Like, is that something you feel like you've always known, or how did you learn to understand other people's perspectives from that
1: angle? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think at the time, like being 22 years old, I would have had, I would have worded it in the same way that I just did now. (laughs) Like, there's been a lot of like personal growth that's gone into me being able to see things that way. But I think at the time, I I knew that my parents loved me and they had always supported me in everything that I did. And it wasn't like they were, you know, trying to actively like stop me or that they like weren't supporting me. Um, But they, I, I could just tell that they were fearful. And I think this is what I tell people all the time. I really think that this is the reason why self trust changes your life in so many ways because when you trust yourself on a deep level, You don't need your parents or your friends or anybody else to be affirming that what you're doing is correct or good or right because you know that you're on your path and you trust that direction. And that's something that I don't know how I had that at 22 years old, but for whatever reason, like I did, you know, I think um, I know that you're interested in human design and my, my authority is like a sacral authority. So that's like my gut. So when I feel something in my gut, when I just intuitively know something, I really trust that. That's like an innate part of my makeup and my design. So I often attribute the things that happened back when I was, you know, 20, 21, 22 to that, because I didn't have the language for it. I didn't have the understanding of it. I didn't know why or how I could trust this feeling, but I just did. But yeah, I've definitely had to go through like my whole personal development and growth journey to really understand what is happening on a deeper level when someone is projecting their own shit onto you. And that really, just like you said, it helps create more compassion because instead of being angry at the person, And projecting back (laughs) at them your insecurities of like, oh, what, you don't think I'm capable because maybe there's some part of you that wonders, am I capable of this? Right? There's a a greater level of compassion of like, oh, you know, my mom's just like being my mom and caring about me and like worried and wants me to be safe. A hundred percent.
0: Self-trust is, like you just said, probably one of the most important things you could cultivate. Especially in your 20s when you're going through a lot of turbulence and a lot of chaos and you're making a lot of big decisions. And something my therapist just told me, which I thought was very simple but mind blowing, was she was like, When you make a decision or do something, or you're you feel yourself wanting to go tell someone to hear their affirmation back, don't like just keep it to yourself. And I was like, What? Like, what do you mean? I want to share it, I want to do this. But I realized, yes, when I go tell someone oh my gosh, I got this new client. I'm so excited about it. Or I'm going on a first date or whatever the case is. Sometimes I'm telling them out of a celebration and sometimes I'm telling them for affirmation and then I'm waiting for their opinion of like, what do they think? What are they going to say? And just trusting Mm. myself by saying, okay, I'm going to keep this to myself at least for a few days. It builds out self-trust because you're like, I don't need anybody to tell me what their thoughts are. So I'm curious for you, you know, you've gone on a personal growth journey and self-development. Do you have tips or takeaways or tricks or anything for people to cultivate self-trust?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think the best way to start building self-trust is to start really small. Like a lot of people want to have the self-trust to be able to leave their job or to be able to exit a relationship that maybe is not serving them or do these really big scary, intimidating things. And they're like, oh, I wish I trusted myself more. And it's like, well, we can't start with like that huge thing. We have to start with really small things. So uh, I know like a lot of women feel or maybe they identify as being indecisive. And I think if you struggle with indecision or you feel that you're an indecisive person, that right there is an indicator of a lack of self-trust because even making the decision for a shirt that you wanna buy or what you're gonna order off the menu, if that is like paralyzing to you or you feel like you have to bounce that idea off of somebody else or ask your friends if this shirt looks good before you buy it or ask the other people what they're gonna order before you choose what you're gonna order, then that's like an indication that you don't feel safe enough to make your decision on your own without having the approval of other people. So you can start to build self-trust by beginning in those tiny little ways. Like go to the restaurant and order what you want without asking other people what they're gonna have. Go to the store and buy whatever without sending a picture to your mom or your best friend and asking if it looks good. Like start doing little things just by yourself without asking anybody else if it if it's good or if they would do the same thing or what they would do that's a big one if you're always asking like oh i want your opinion like what would you do just catch yourself right there and switch it to what would i do because you already know what you would do you don't need to know what everybody else would do and the truth is that like even if someone does tell you what they would do it's irrelevant to you because they have a totally different life than you they have a totally different Lived experience. They are giving you that opinion from an entirely different lens of how they see the world, their past experiences, their belief systems, their traumas. Like what somebody else would do is irrelevant to what you would do. So just start switching that question, even for the smallest of things. And that over time will help you start to build that self trust because you'll realize, oh, I didn't die and things didn't go to shit when I just decided for myself what I wanted to do or have or buy or order.
0: Amen. Baby steps, you guys. Baby steps will get you so far in life. And we talk about this all the time on the podcast. And I know, Samantha, you talk about this. Nervous system regulation. Like, we need to be able to feel safe in our decisions, like you just said. If you feel unsafe ordering a steak on the menu when everyone else is ordering pizza... Of course, it's going to be hard when you're ready to quit your job and everyone's telling you not to. So I 100% agree with the baby steps and just catching yourself asking people, you know, what's your opinion? Usually, too, when you ask someone, you already know what answer you're seeking out, Mm -hmm. right? Like when I ask someone their opinion, I'm like, oh, I really hope they say the one that agrees with me. And like you just said, we know that. So we need to trust that. Am I seeking out their opinion just to affirm this or am I genuinely just like, asking just to hear what they have to say. And I think we all know the answer. So it's just being a little more discerning.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. I want to talk about love again just for a second because I feel like no one actually understands how hard it is to live abroad with a partner in a country (laughs) that you're not familiar (laughs) with or it's not your first language. So – I dealt with this in Germany and I did it for a year. And I mean, German's a hard language. At least Spanish is a, a language that you yeah. were already studying and you studied abroad there and you had the love for Spain. Uh, Germany was probably like the last place I wanted to. Live. <laughs> and I had a really hard time. I would say four to five months in where I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like I don't know the language. I'm, I don't even really want to learn it. I, I'm not in love with the culture or the people. It was really, really hard for me to adjust. I mean, ultimately, what, it's what ended my relationship. I just couldn't be there that much longer. And for you, you were there for quite a while. So can you just talk about the adjustments of living in a new country with a new partner that is a different background than you? I just want to hear about your experience.
1: Yeah, this is so interesting. And it's funny because it's such a unique experience that like not everybody can relate to. So it's cool that like both you and I have had this uh shared experience of something so individual, I guess. Um so yeah, I think, well, first of all, like going on a date, I would encourage everybody to go on a first date with someone who doesn't speak the same language as you. <laughs> because that shit will humble you fucking fast. (laughs) Like if you thought that you were nervous to go on a regular ass first date, (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) Imagine like, trying to speak a, either your second language or having the other person speak their second language. So that was like in the beginning of our relationships, like the language barrier just in and of itself was such a struggle. Now we're so much better because his English has improved and my Spanish improved so much, obviously by living there for six years. But what I think is also relevant is and interesting is like when you date, Americans or when you date someone from your own country there's a certain level of of shared experience of just you know you kind of go to school in the same way there's certain things that sort of like happen to everybody that's you know there's like little anecdotes of life you're like oh you know when you would have like the book fair or something like something so random but it's like everybody knows what you're talking about because you come from the same culture and you come from the same sort of educational background. It's so different when you're dating someone in a totally different country and a completely different culture, like you don't have as many shared experiences and everything is new and everything is learning something different about them. And yeah, we just like don't realize how much we grow up in such different ways from people in other countries. So I think that was like really interesting, dating someone from a totally different language and culture and background and really realizing how much our life experiences in general just like massively differed.
0: Yeah, I, I'm i curious, what are some of the things in Spain that you were either had trouble adjusting to or you're just like, this is so weird, I can't believe people do this?
1: <laughs> um. Well, I think we had a conversation Uh about Christmas because Christmas in other countries is always like really fascinating. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I'm a big fan of like American Christmas. I just think nothing really compares to it. Like, and that may be because it's what I'm used to. And when you grow up with a certain holiday and it becomes such like a cornerstone of like life and just how you see things and how you want the holiday to be anything that's not that just feels wrong, you know? So I know you had like a, like similar observations of what Christmas is like in Australia and everything. But yeah, I would say like Christmas to me in Spain, and I don't want to defend anybody in, I don't want to offend anyone in Spain, sorry, because like they probably love it because it's what they're used to. But I just, it's so boring to me. Like that was really hard spending Christmases there. I was just like, this is like, I want to put, forks in my eyeballs with how boring this is
0: (laughs) yeah i agree we talked about this in the dms where i i'm gonna go on record and say this i hated christmas in australia everyone it was weird it was first of all summer there so when you're thinking of like cold cozy christmas and then everyone's in bikinis getting absolutely wasted on the beach eating blackout mcdonald's and then like nothing's (laughs) open to have a christmas dinner i was like this feels like illegal. Like I feel like we're doing something wrong because, like you said, <laughs> we're just used to the states being cozy with the Christmas lights and the music and everything. There was no music, no decorations, no lights. I, I was like, I never want to be here for Christmas again. So uh yeah, if you guys can relate, let us know because Christmas abroad is just something that it, it can also feel like really lonely and isolating. You're like, I want to be home with my family. And so I'm curious about that. Like six years in Spain is a long time. And I'm imagining at some point, did you ever get homesick? Or were you just like, I love Spain. I, I can't even picture myself moving back.
1: Oh, no, I definitely got homesick. Like my first year there, when it w- we were kind of like coming up to Christmas time, I think it was, I remember like having a conversation, like just being in tears with my boyfriend being like, I actually don't know how much longer I can do this. And that was like really early on. Um, And I just, I think it, I don't know. People talk about culture shock. I didn't think I had as much of culture shock because I'd already lived in Spain before, but it's definitely an adjustment, especially coming right off of college where you're like living with all of your best friends all the time. There's so many people around, like you feel so supported and there's always something to do. And so- I was very homesick the first year, but as soon as I came home for Christmas and I kind of got that like opportunity to fill my cup with my family and everything, I was actually craving to go back. And I was like, oh, I really want to get back to Spain, which was good news for me. And that kind of was uh, a bit of how I fluctuated a lot over the six years was like, oh my gosh, like I'm really missing home. And then I would do a trip home and I would feel really filled up and then i would start to miss a lot of the elements of life in spain and i would really be excited to go back like every time the plane would land in madrid and i would like see the familiar like surrounding scenery around the madrid airport as we were landing like i would get so excited and just be like this is my life like i literally get to live in europe and like spain is so cool and like it's just an experience that not a lot of people get to have so there was a lot of gratitude there always coming back but yeah there were definitely times that I got homesick. I mean, just like with Christmas to give everyone like a perspective of how it's so different like in Spain and actually in a lot of other countries in Europe, they don't really do gifts or celebrate on the 25th. They don't do gifts and all the way until the 6th of January for Three Kings Day where the three wise men kind of bring the gifts. So it was just weird as fuck like waking up on Christmas morning and legit having nothing to do. There's no tree like there's no gifts there's no there's no nothing like there's no ambiance like at my house at home we wake up and it's like an event there's like mimosas there's coffee there's cinnamon buns like my mom's making all this amazing breakfast like we're all in our our brand new Christmas PJs that we opened up on Christmas Eve together where my dad's has a fire going. We're opening gifts together. We're laughing. We're playing music. Like we're opening gifts for like four hours straight. Like it's just such a different energy. So yeah, it can be really isolating when you wake up to an empty ass apartment (laughs) and no gifts and you're like, what the fuck?
0: (laughs) It's wild. It really is wild trying to adjust to other countries holidays and and like holidays that you don't even celebrate. And they're celebrating that they're like, this is the biggest holiday. And you're like, "I, I don't even relate. Like, I don't have any skin in the game. So for me, it feels like another Tuesday. And for them, it's like the biggest Tuesday of the year. So it's it really is interesting trying to adjust to those holidays. I'm also curious because I've lived in Spain for a little bit. I know they have a very different view of work culture and they have nap time. They do not stay open 24 seven. They are not at the helm of other people like customer service isn't of the utmost importance there and urgency. (laughs) And that was something that I appreciated when I lived there. But I also at times were like, where is the waiter? Why have I been waiting here for 45 minutes to order? But it's because they value mealtime and having long dinners. And you're back in the States where it's like, what's up? What can I get you? Let's flip this table within the next 30 minutes. And everything is fast, bigger, stronger. I mean, you can get anything on demand in America. So you've just got back. So what has it been like being back in America, adjusting to it? And also, do you miss some of the lifestyle of Spain?
1: Mm, I don't think I've had enough time yet to miss Things from Spain because we've only been back for like two weeks. So I've just been really soaking up all of the things that we missed about America, you know, the convenience, the speed everything. Like you can just get anything. I was so excited to go to the grocery store in America and just like have everything that I could ever dream of. Like all the vegan cheeses, like a million kinds of nut milk, like all the kind of stuff that just like you cannot really find with a lot of ease in Spain. Um, So yeah, we've been, or at least I've been like geeking out on just the benefits of being back in america and having everything at our fingertips but yeah when i first moved to spain it's definitely an adjustment like uh, how the pace of life and how slow things are and restaurant service customer service in general just like how long something takes if you need to like get something fixed in your apartment or something it's like There's no – no one's really in a rush to, like, figure it out or, like, get it sorted or get it done. It's like you, (laughs) no one is in a rush. So I think it was helpful for me, though, to slow myself down a little bit and cultivate a little bit more patience. Like, I'm still working on having much more patience in my life just with myself and with others. Like, that is one – virtue that I really want to move towards in this lifetime. And living in Spain for six years definitely helped me cultivate a greater sense of like patience and removing the urgency. Because I think a lot of times in the US also, we create urgency where there really isn't any. Like we create this sense of urgency even when it's unnecessary. Like sometimes, yeah, you're there's a pipe broken in your kitchen and you really need a plumber to like fix it and it is urgent. But there's other things that we're like, I need it now when you don't actually need it now. So that, that's been helpful. I mean, living in another country is just going to help you expand your mind and your perception of life in the world in so many different ways. So I think it's a benefit to have experienced that deep contrast between the U.S. and life in Spain.
0: Absolutely. It's I think it just makes you more resourceful. You have to be more creative. You have to be more patient. You have to learn different ways to communicate with people. And yeah, that's that's common in Europe that there's not a lot of urgency. I remember we had a leak in our roof and I was like, oh, the landlord will be here in like 30 minutes to an hour. Right. And my ex was like, no, they're probably not going to come for like two weeks. We need to go to my parents' house. I'm like, what are you talking about that we need to go live at your parents' house? Like, There's a leak. They need to come fix it. And he's like, they're not even answering their phone. I'm like, this is wild to me. And I was, I was in shock. I'm like, <laughs> i like, I can't believe this. It's so interesting when you come back home and like you said, we can get everything on demand within two seconds. But I do think it helped me cultivate a lot of patience and um, resourcefulness living abroad. Totally. So I want to actually switch gears a little bit and talk about your business. So you've mentioned this, that you were in Spain on a visa teaching English, which, by the way, everyone, that's a really common way to go live abroad is to teach English. So if you're like, how do people just live abroad? Honestly, that's probably the easiest way is teaching English. So at some point, and you mentioned this, you realize this is not great pay and it's almost on the poverty line. So when did you have a revelation of like, I want to do something else and maybe work for myself?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think the goal was always for me at some point to be able to get my residency in Spain, which would allow me to then like be able to work. And so I wouldn't have to stay in that system of like English teaching on a student visa. And so after I think by the end of the first year, I was able to get my residency in Spain through my partner. So it's not something that like everybody can just do. Um, But because we were like in a partnership. I was able to get my residency, which was nice. So then I started looking for, you know, higher paying jobs and things that were like a bit more legitimate. So I actually transitioned from that kind of like student visa English teaching program in the schools to teaching English in like a private academy where we were teaching adults and actors. And there were some famous people that even came in there and they were learning English. And I was earning more money, but like that job turned out to be kind of toxic and there were a lot of weird rules there that were just like not healthy for like um employees like mental health and stuff so i was like i that was the job that actually pushed me over the edge where i was like i have to do something else and i need to like get out of this cycle so during that time i had started a network marketing business and i was kind of starting to create a little bit of residual income through network marketing And then that was also one of the things that really catapulted me onto a personal growth journey because if anybody's familiar with network marketing, when you get into a network marketing company, they really push like personal development and personal growth. And so they provide a lot of uh, book recommendations for you. There's a lot of um, really amazing speakers that are known for speaking to network marketing companies. And so it just kind of like got me inserted into that world. And that is what sent me on my own journey of like uncovering so much of myself and my purpose and what I wanted to do in life and changing my mindset in so many ways and opening me up to what was possible and really understanding the law of attraction and manifestation. And I learned so much through my own personal journey. That's when I kind of was like, oh, I really want to teach this to people. Like I want to help other people get this information and integrate it into their lives so they can start living the way that they really want to live. And that was the early, early beginnings of what would become my coaching business.
0: Incredible. So what did you realize with coaching? Like you talked about mindset manifestation. How did you then find clients in Spain? Because I know there's people listening that are like, I want to start my own coaching business. I think I could help people but they don't know how to find clients or how to teach or they think they don't have enough certifications, like how did you end up turning it into a viable business?
1: Yeah. So this is the amazing thing about like the internet and Instagram and running an online business is that your clients can really come from anywhere, right? So I think I only ever had Two clients, maybe, that came from Spain. Uh, My audience was mainly in the US and actually in Australia. So I've had most of my clients from one of those two countries. There's obviously been other international women mixed in over the years. But I just first started really showing up more on Instagram and utilizing my Instagram as a platform to share what I had been learning and to showcase my offers and present my first like program that I created to my Instagram followers. That was basically my only tactic. To launch like the beta round of my signature mindset and manifestation program was talking on stories, posting on Instagram and sharing what I was doing. Like I didn't really have a big email list at that point. I had started a weekly newsletter. I was blogging. I had a website which I would, you know, blog about mindset and health and things like that on. Um but yeah, Instagram was basically just the main vehicle for being able to launch my services and get clients. I know there's people
0: listening right now that want to put together a course and they either a don't know how or b they don't know what to charge. So how did you move through that process?
1: Mm. So for pricing, what I always the guidance that I always give around pricing. The first time you price anything that you create, it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> like you're going to pick eight different prices and then cross them all out and second guess yourself a thousand times. Like pricing your very first offer is the the hardest one. After that it gets easier, but the very first time you price one of your services, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be like a a wild ride. It's a bit chaotic, but I didn't have any guidance when I was pricing my first thing. I was basically just going off of industry standard, what I saw and knew that other coaches were charging for programs and what I felt the program was worth and what I felt like I could, quote unquote, like get away with. I think that's what everybody kind of feels when they're pricing their first program is like, what can I get away with here? (laughs) You know, like how much could I actually charge for this thing? So that's a very, uh, a very real feeling. But now the guidance that I like to give my business clients when pricing programs or services is. Understanding that the price that you put on something is not necessarily how many hours of work have gone into creating the program, or the amount of hours of contact time that the client has with you. All those things are factors, but it's not the same as you know traditional work sense where it's like how much do you charge per hour, and then taking that hourly rate and applying it to the hours of your program. Um, That's not really how it works in coaching, and I think. What the price should really be reflective of is the transformation that's provided, right? Because if you can spend 10 hours with someone and radically change their relationship to themselves or their relationship to the world or their mindset in some specific aspects or how they see themselves, that is worth way more than just 10 hours because that's going to be something that they carry with them forever it's a tool and it's an an insight that allows them to open so many doors and opportunities in their life forevermore so we're pricing based on the transformation not just oh it's 5 hours of one-on-one coaching or whatever it is right so thinking about what's the transformation that you provide and also always making sure that it's going to feel like an equal energetic exchange for what you're giving and what you're receiving, right? Because at the end of the day, like money is just energy and it's our means of exchange in the world right now as of present. And so you want to price your services in a way that's going to feel like an equal energetic exchange so that you don't end up feeling like you gave more than what you received or, you know, you totally underpriced yourself or lowballed yourself and now you've given away all of this stuff for such a small return. Um, we want that to feel really equal. And I think it's good for the client also when it feels equal. Like we should be wanting it to feel like an equal exchange on both ends. So those are my two main pieces of guidance when it comes to pricing is pricing based on the transformation, not just the hours, and making sure that it feels like an equal, energetic exchange, what you're giving and what you're receiving.
0: I love that advice. It's such great advice. and trust me you all like sam said in the beginning you probably will lowball yourself because you're like oh my god is anyone actually gonna pay this and then when you do get that payment and you do all the work you're like oh my god i severely underpriced this i remember my first coaching client i charged like one tenth of what i do now and after two or three calls i was like this is so much work i wish i would have just given a higher number off the bat but You live and you learn, right? I knew again, okay, I'm never going to charge that again. I need to raise my prices. And I actually believe it's okay to start small and start getting comfortable with charging. Even asking for money is an uncomfortable thing. Receiving money, setting up your Stripe and PayPal, that's a big hurdle that people have a problem with. And I think getting comfortable with just receiving money in the beginning helps regulate your nervous system. And it proves to you wow, my services are worth monetary compensation. And the transformation is incredible. And then slowly turning up the volume of like, okay, now I'm going to raise it by 500, maybe a 1000, maybe 2000. And you start to get comfortable with saying your price. But I agree in the beginning, it can be a rocky road that you're just like, I, I just want to get paid and I want to see what happens. <laughs> so I always see people get caught up in the mindset of, um, they don't have certification. Mm. I don't have enough certifications. I don't think I've taken enough courses. I don't have a business coach yet. I don't think I can do this. Did you ever face that? And what would your advice be for someone who's going through that?
1: Yeah. I think when I first started, like I did my online life coaching certification. But the certification that i did at the time like it's not one that i would repeat it's not one that i would like recommend to people because i didn't really i didn't know as many people in this space now like if i were to do a life coaching certification or a certification of any kind now I would make sure that I was going to someone that I follow, that I trust, that I really love, that I know the work that they do, and get into their certifications to really learn their specific method. Um, The certification that I did was much more generic; like I didn't really learn anything exceptional in it. It was much more just around like the business side of like having a life coaching practice and the confidentiality piece and certain things like that. But it wasn't like we were learning. In depth, like modalities and how to really get a transformation from your client. Like, it wasn't really like that. So, I got my certification because I felt that same sense of pressure of, you know, I want to be certified in some way. But having had that experience, I realized that the piece of paper that I got and the certification that I did, like, I would have been equally as good of a life coach with or without that because it ultimately wasn't like that transformational in terms of like a certification program. Obviously there are ones out there that are like that, but I think, and there's nothing wrong with being certified. Like I think, yeah, we should all continue our education and continue to learn and, and gain new skills and continue to evolve as coaches. Like certifications are incredible, but what we're talking about here, I think is the women that continue to hold themselves back unnecessarily for prolonged periods of time because of the sense of imposter syndrome. And what you have to understand is that if you don't feel worthy of sitting in the teacher's seat and helping guide someone through something that you've been through, no amount of certifications or pieces of paper is going to solve that for you. That is an internal self-worth issue that needs to be handled in a different way than just continuing to go out and get more certifications and more certifications. So if you're worried about like, oh, I don't know how I'm gonna do this because I I don't think I know enough. I don't think I have enough certifications. I need to get this, that, and the other thing. I would just encourage you to like stop and really reflect and ask yourself if it's really about certification or if it's about you being scared to go forward and take the next step and really put yourself out there. In most cases, that's what's happening and that's why people are stopping themselves is because they don't feel worthy of being the coach yet, of charging money, of putting their services out there, of saying, I can help you. Yeah. I 100%
0: agree that a lot of the certifications out there, by the way, I want everyone to know this because I feel like it's a secret that no one knows, but like to be a coach, you don't have to be certified, but also a lot of the certifications that you all are getting are made up. I could call up, I could make up my own certification right now called Chelsea Rice Mindset Coaching Certification, and you could come get certified by me and get a certificate that I make on Canva. That is what a lot of coaches do. So when they say, come get my, you know, XYZ certified coaching thing, It's literally them making a certificate on Canva and they made their own framework and curriculum. But I just don't want people to get duped into thinking, oh my God, if I don't take Chelsea Rice mindset certification, I can't be a mindset coach. That's that's actually false. So that's something that I learned along the way when I would hear, you know, the blah, 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 academy is coming out or the business school certification. I was like, oh, oh my God, that's, you know, that's a Harvard level certification that I need to get for my coaching business. And then once you find out that it's, they just called it, you know, the mindset coaching Academy, it's like, oh, I don't actually need that. So I don't know. I feel like that I'm really big on like context and transparency. And I feel like everyone should know that a lot of the coaching certifications are just made up by the coach and they're not like going through a, a, you know, expert level curriculum reviewer to see if it actually is transformational or not. So right. I don't know. I would love your thoughts on that. And like, did you feel a little bit like, wait, what, this isn't what I thought when you got into the coaching industry?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like the coaching industry is still like an unregulated industry. Right. So it's like, I know you got certified in yoga as did I. So I think something we can compare it to probably is like when you get a yoga certification, Most of those certifications have to go through what the governing body, which is called like the Yoga Alliance, and that Yoga Alliance, which is like a board of members of some kind, they have to approve the curriculum of your Yoga Studios certification program. They have to see that they have X amount of hours educating on this, that, and the other thing, and they have to say, yes, this is a legitimate, appropriate Curriculum for a 200 hour yoga certification. And so it goes through like a governing body. And so that creates just, yeah, like more regulation and a sense of safety of knowing that the people that are getting certified in yoga teaching are all kind of funneling through not the same program, but at least the same general structure of what they need to know in order to be a good yoga instructor. But that Does not exist yet in the coaching industry. I think I'm assuming like at some point that will happen and there will start to be like some kind of regulating body because the coaching industry is huge, it's massive and it's only growing and getting bigger. So it'll be interesting to see like how that evolves. But yeah, I was definitely like surprised when I found out that like a lot of the certifications that coaches offer don't have to go through any type of like governing body or Higher level, like approval. And so it really is just what they've learned or the curriculum that they put together. And then they provide you with a certificate. And some of those programs, don't get me wrong, like they could be awesome. If it's like a really experienced coach and they know what they're talking about and they're someone who runs their business in integrity, they're going to be teaching you really, really valuable things to help you on your journey as becoming a coach. But also, you just have to be discerning as the consumer because there's other coaches that just want to put a certification program out there because it's something that you can charge a lot of money for and there's no regulation behind it. So yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because that is one area of the industry that definitely needs more context and conversation.
0: Oh my gosh, you used the word that is so important, discerning. If you are feeling like you're being pushed into something and they won't let you make a decision without, you know, keeping you on the phone and they're forcing you to take out a credit card to pay for this certification, I would probably turn it down. I have dealt with that before. I remember someone, I I could tell, like you just said, a certification is something that you can charge a lot of money for. And I could tell this person just wanted to become a millionaire by the end of the year. And she was going to do anything at all costs to make sure that people took the certification program and use some very harmful sales tactics And I remember feeling so icky about the whole thing. And I was like, this is crazy. She's just doing this to make a shit ton of money and isn't even thinking about the experience she's providing in the sales process, which was turning a lot of people off. And I remember thinking, I never want to be like that. I never want to push people into sales and make them feel like they can't make a decision on their own. But that is something like Sam said, you need to be discerning. If you feel like something's off, it's probably off. So I'm curious, Sam, have you ever made an investment or been in a situation where you're like, I don't know about that. I don't know if that was the best investment. I don't know if I should have worked with that coach. And then how did you kind of become a better buyer after that?
1: Yeah, luckily, I've never gotten myself into a situation where I've actually gone through and like purchased something that I felt icky about, and then been like, "Uh, why did I join this or why did I do this?" I felt too pressured. But I've definitely been in like DM conversations with other coaches or mentors where I'm just like, "Ugh, your energy is like so bossy or like talking down ish to me that I'm just like, I actually want nothing to do with your like." free offer or paid offer or whatever the fuck it is that you like have because I can just feel this like weird, icky energy. And I think that's something that coming back to that self-trust piece is like your intuition doesn't lie and like energy doesn't lie. If you are getting a bad vibe from someone in the sales process – you should use that as a huge indicator of what the rest of your experience with that coach, mentor, or practitioner is gonna be like. Like the sales process is a really good indicator for how someone sees themselves and runs their business and approaches working with clients. So if you feel unsafe in the sales process, you should get the fuck out right then and there.
0: That was really good advice. If it's already feeling weird in the beginning, I highly doubt it's gonna feel any better when you start or you're halfway through. So, I love that advice. Something that you and I talked about on your podcast was when you get into the coaching industry, you see the prices that people charge and what people are making and it seems fake. You're like, "What? It, what do you mean you made $100,000 from a launch? What do you mean you make $20,000 a month?" Like that was I could not wrap my head around that until I had been in it for about 6 months and I was like, "Okay, now I'm starting to understand." but I want to know your experience, especially in the beginning when you maybe made your first big investment. People always want to know, where did you find the money? How did you do this? How did you end up paying $3,000 for a coach or $10,000 for a mastermind? Because it is a hard concept to wrap your head around when you're just getting started.
1: Yeah. So I always like to share this, just like complete transparency. The first business coach that I ever invested in, I had to borrow that money. I did not have $5,000 to spend for like the first investment that I wanted to make with a business coach. And so I had to, I talked about this on my podcast pretty recently as well, but like I had to do a full on like Shark Tank presentation for my parents (laughs) of my business and my mission and the stats from the beta round and how many women I served and what the results were and, you know, how much money I made and, like the projections of where I was going and what I was trying to create. And like, no joke, this was a video call like with my parents, they were in the US. I was in Spain at this time. My dad showed up to the call in a suit, like ready. And he had like a sign hung up behind him on the wall that literally said Shark Tank. Like this was a legitimate, like nerve wracking presentation. I'm dying. I know, that I had to make to like, get investors because that's what I was doing. I was like, I need help because I want to expand my business. And I know that I need someone who has more experience than me to help speed up this process. But I physically right now don't have the money to invest. Like I was still teaching in Spain at that time, earning basically like around a thousand euros a month, a little bit more than that, which is Nothing, you know? So I didn't have that much in savings. And I was really just trying to be like scrappy and like get myself in the game because I knew I had potential. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have five grand to just throw at a coach. So that's like honest, just being completely transparent transparent. Like that's what I did (laughs) to get, to make my first investment. And then once I invested in that coach, I learned strategies and different ways to operate within the coaching space that allowed me to make $15,000 in three months. So then I was able to put a little bit more away to savings. I had a little bit more cushion. I was earning more money. I was getting more clients and then I could sustain myself and make those big investments in mentors moving forward. But the first one, like, yeah, I did not have the money to like put down on that. And I remember one of the first coaches that I wanted to work with, I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to work with her. Like she's incredible. Like she's earning $100,000 a month. Like she knows something that I do not know. And like I need to find out. I need to get this knowledge. And so I reached out to her and I was chatting to her and she was like, yeah, just like be completely transparent. Like it's $15,000 to work with me for three months. And that was the moment where I realized like, holy fuck. Like, this is how people make $100,000 in a month, (laughs) you know, like wild. And I was like, wow, okay, definitely cannot do that, but I will in the future. And I actually did. I was able to come back to that coach and work with her, which was an awesome, just kind of like full circle moment. Because the first time I'd reached out to her, it was before I even invested in the $5,000 coach. Because after I talked to her, I was like, okay, maybe I can't do that yet, but I need to find something that's more feasible and more available to me. And I think that's the beauty of of this space too is that there's a lot of coaches operating at different levels and you just have to find one that fits where you are at and what you're working through and, and what you have available. I'm so glad
0: you mentioned the different levels thing because I think sometimes the messaging we can get is like, go all in, drain your life savings and invest. And sometimes it's like, let me start out with like, a $100 consult. You know, let me just try a one on one consult. Now, let me try like a $200 consult and see how I feel about that. And then you get comfortable with seeing, okay, yeah, when I put this money towards it, this is the result I get back. And I'm so happy you shared how you found the money for your first investment because A, that's hilarious. <laughs> and B, it shows you that, yeah, we all don't have $5,000 in our savings ready to just go towards coaching. And I think I've said this on my podcast before, but most of my early investments I put on a credit card. I was, and I had to open multiple credit cards because I didn't have the money, but I never made an investment without the thought that I'm not gonna make it back. So if I've invested in something, whether that was monetarily making it back or like energetically, I was gonna be improving my mental health or my physical health, but I never made an investment with like, oh, the idea that this is gonna just be wasted. If you're making an investment and you're not ready to, actually commit and do the work, then I wouldn't make the investment because it's it's going to feel like a waste of money. And then you're going to blame the coach and be like, oh, this program sucked. I got nothing out of it. But it's like, did you actually get nothing out of it? Or did you not show up to the calls? Did you do the homework? Did you fill out the workbooks? Like, That's something I had to learn on early too is I was doing these programs and I would be like, why am I not a millionaire? Why haven't I lost the weight? Why haven't I done this? And it's like, you're not even doing the one they asked you to like track your finances for a month and you're not even doing that. So that was a reality check I had to serve myself of like, Chelsea, you're literally not even doing the bare minimum of what they're asking you to do. You need to take some responsibility. So that's something I wanted to talk to you about too is I feel like sometimes there's a lot of pressure as a coach when you are charging higher prices to like radically transform someone's life. And you can get into this position where maybe the client didn't have a big transformation or maybe they wanted to like cancel the contract early that you start making it about yourself and your own skills. Have you ever dealt with that? And how did you work through those, those mindset struggles?
1: Yeah, this is, this is a really good point. And I think there's definitely, there's definitely been times, especially earlier on where I allowed like the imposter syndrome to kind of like get in the way. But I think what's important is If you are in integrity with what you are offering and what you're teaching and sharing with your clients, you will always know that that is information and energy and care and time and love that has the potential to create big change. If you've seen your program be successful or transformational for clients in the past, and you know that this is the content that changed your life and was transformational for you and your journey, then you don't need to doubt what it is that you're offering. And it can be tricky if you feel like, oh, there's a client that's not getting a result or they're not massively, you know, changing their life. But I always put even like on my sales pages, you know, like this is for you if blah, 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 blah. And this is not for you if whatever. And one of the things that I always put in the section of like, this is not for you, is if you are not able to take responsibility for your results, because you have to understand as a coach that like you can only do so much, right? You can pour your heart and your passion and your time and your love into a program and outlining things in a really beautiful way and sharing all of the information that you've gained and that helped you and that helped your past clients and not gatekeeping information and really just being like an open book. And if they have a question, you answer it. Like you can do all of that and still someone cannot get a result in your program because like you said, they may not be doing the work. Like they may not actually be intentionally listening to everything or taking notes or doing the homework that you provide them or journaling on the things that you ask them to journal on or doing those small tasks that are important. And so as the coach, you have to take 100% responsibility for your 50% of the formula. And the client has to do the same. The client has to take 100% responsibility for their 50% of the formula, which means how they show up and what they choose to do or not do inside of your program. Um, So yeah, I've just tried my best to not take it personally. If someone doesn't get as big of a result as they were hoping for, because I know that I've done hundred percent of my 50%.
0: That's a great quote. Taking hundred percent responsibility for your 50%. It's like a, a riddle, but it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and you know, what's true too is I think, um, when you're talking about this too, it's also important as a coach, because I, I want to speak on both sides here, that you don't get arrogant and think that you're, you know, you know, everything. This is why I think having feedback forms is important and asking people after their experience, what did you like? What did you not like? What do you think could be improved? Because I've been in that situation where I'm like, I know what the fuck I'm talking about. I don't need feedback. And then the feedback was like, we were moving through the material really quickly and it was hard to apply. I'm like, oh, that actually is good feedback. Let me space it out or let me drip the content early in the week and then we'll do a new module later in the week instead of just fire hosing them with information. So I think as a coach, you actually need to have thick skin and be open to criticism and feedback or else you can't improve. If you're gonna go into it arrogantly and think I know everything and I'm never gonna change, that's when clients get frustrated and are like, I I can't even talk to this person about improving. So that's just a point I wanted to make too is, be open to feedback and, and adjusting if you need to as well.
1: Yeah. And like, it can be hard to receive feedback, especially in the beginning um, when you've like, I mean, it's interesting because the coaching business and industry is really like, you are essentially your product, right? Like you are the one that's like disseminating all of this knowledge and you're teaching and you're showing up on these calls. Like you're basically selling yourself which is a challenge in when we talk about like sales like that's difficult for people because they're not like oh buy this book or this like shampoo or this like amazing thing that i found that i love it's like you're purchasing me which brings up a lot of like self-worth stuff but also on the other side of that coin is then when you receive feedback it's like you feel like the feedback is about you it's like so I've just had to work really hard to not take feedback personally and understand that like, you know, this is helpful to making this product even better and even more transformational for people in the future. So I should want this feedback, even though sometimes like, let's be real, it can hurt your feelings when someone's like, I didn't like this part of it, or it could have been better if it was like this. You're kind of like, oh, because it feels like someone telling you that you did a bad job, but that's, you know, part of the personal growth journey too, is learning how to not take things so personally.
0: A hundred percent. I agree. It's not easy to take feedback. When I open those feedback forms, I'm like, okay, I hope people were nice. I hope they didn't say anything too mean. But like you said, it only makes the product better. And when it's better, you're going to attract more people and people will say, oh my God, she took my feedback into account. She listens. Now I want to refer her out and I'm going to write her an amazing testimonial. So I know it's hard in the beginning but just know it will only improve your product and services. I want to end with something that you and I talked about on your podcast and it's recalibrating to a new income level. I feel like this is not talked about enough at all but you know, we all hear the message like hit your first 10k month, become a millionaire, but no one talks about when you actually start making that type of money, what it feels like, and sometimes we can self-sabotage it. So, I'm curious when was that moment for you where you're like, okay, whoa, money is really rolling in. This is really weird and scary. And then accepting like, yeah, I'm someone who makes this type of money now.
1: Yeah. So I think the first time that I really remember having that kind of like out of body, like jarring experience when money started coming in was probably when I made my first like 25K month. And because if you guys remember, I said that I was teaching in Spain at the time and I was earning about 1,100-ish euros a month. And for three and a half months out of the year, we weren't working or getting paid because school was out. So at the end of the year, that's like less than 12 grand a year salary, which is shocking, I know. <laughs> so when I saw like $25,000 month like show up in my bank account, like in my um, like finance tracking, I kind of felt like I was living in a simulation. Like, is this even real? And there is a a very like real moment where you do kind of get scared. Like the large amounts of money can be really scary because you're kind of just thinking like, like, what do I do with this? Like, Is this real? Like, should people actually be paying me this much money? Like, am I going to get charged a bunch for taxes on this? Like, where should I be putting this? Is it safe in my checking account? Does it need to go somewhere else? Like, you just kind of don't know what you're meant to do with it. It's like that moment where you're like, "Oh, what do I do with my hands?" You're like, "What do I do with all this money?" So that's why it's so that's why it's so important. Like what we talked about on my podcast of learning about money management and also money mindset so that you're prepared to receive and hold and manage the money before it arrives because a lot like what happened with your story Chelsea like you can just kind of lose track of what you're what you wanted to do with that money or what's like a good idea or a smart idea to do with that money and just feel like you're rich all of a sudden and start acting like you can afford everything And then, you know, looking at back at your bank account and being like, wait, where did all of that money go? Like, I don't even know what I did with that. So yeah, I think it's really, really important and a a valuable investment for everybody, whether it's, you know, time or money, but learning how to actually create a structure that safely holds the money for when it comes in.
0: I love that. Can you? Can you walk someone through that process? Like when you say create a structure, what what would be the first step that they could do?
1: I think the first thing that you can feasibly do, like if you have nothing else, is to really make sure that you have at least a checking account and a savings account. So maybe you're not at a place where like your business has its whole own, you know, Employer ID number, and you have a bank account set up for it that's just for the business. But if your money is still like funneling into your personal accounts, at least make sure that you have a checking account and a a savings account of some kind. You might want to look for like a high yield savings account so that the compound interest is a little bit higher than just a regular savings account, but having somewhere that you can feel like is a safe landing pad for your money so that it's not all just going into your checking and every time you swipe your card, you're just kind of like, I know that I have $50,000 in there so like I can get whatever I want. You know, just like being able to visually start to separate out what your money looks like and understanding that all of your money is not money to be spent. Um, I know that you've like worked with Natalia before, right? And her kind of like money management system. Yes. And- she she has like a bunch of different um, accounts set up. So, you know, she like separates it out into all these different areas. So you can create as many as you want, but start to separate your money out and chunk it out into these different categories, like what you're setting aside for retirement, what you're setting aside to like spend or treat yourself or self-care stuff. What is actual like savings? What is your emergency fund? Like you can create as many accounts as you want, but separating out your money so that it's not all just in one big bulk lump sum pile, I think is a really feasible first step for anybody.
0: I love that advice. That's creating structure is just creating a plan. So have a plan for your money and you will not freak out when the money starts rolling in like I did. Yes. (laughs) Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. We've covered so much ground and clearly you are an expert in traveling, in business, in money. And I ask all my guests this, that what is something that you're not an expert in that you wish that you were?
1: Mm, I am not an expert in astrology, but I just signed up for a program where I'm going to get to learn a lot more about it. So I'm excited for that to kind of it's something that is interesting to me. It's intriguing to me. I love sharing the little bits and pieces that I learn along the way, but I am definitely not an expert in astrology at all, and I'm excited to like dive more into it.
0: Love that. Astrology is an incredible tool. I'm also on the astrology train. So hopefully Sam and I, maybe in like a year, we'll be partnering and doing like an astrology course. So stay tuned.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love this.
0: Well, where can everybody find you? What's coming up and how can people work with you?
1: Yeah. So coming up for me, I am going to be running the second round of my group business coaching program pretty soon, um, sometime in the spring. The dates are not set yet, but if you guys want to check it out, it's called Abundant and Ambitious. Um, You can check me out on Instagram. That's where I usually hang out at underscore Samantha Daly. Or over on TikTok, I'm going to try and get more into my TikTok game. My username is the same. Um, and I also have a podcast that's called Make Shift Happen. So if you want to tune in and hear Chelsea's episode or just learn more about me and the types of things that I talk about and teach, you can also go to samanthadaily.com if you want to check out any of my programs or get on the waitlist for my future business coaching program.
0: Amazing. Guys, check her out. Check out her podcast. It's absolutely incredible. Check out her Instagram as well. You give incredible advice there. So thank you so much for coming on. I've had so much fun talking
1: to you. Yeah, thank you so much. We have to do this again sometime soon.
0: Yes, 100%. Well, there you have it. Samantha Daly dropping all the knowledge about pricing, coaching, business, and what it's truly like living abroad. I hope you guys were at least entertained with us talking about the holidays and how we really are just major American Christmas hype girls. I think that's a really interesting conversation and I can't wait to explore traveling and living abroad a bit more. But I also hope the conversation towards the end around pricing and investment really landed with you. I know personally, I had a hard time investing in myself especially when I was working in corporate America, which is hilarious because I was making way more money than I am now. And I just was like, "Mm, no, I don't want to invest in a coach. I don't want to invest in therapy. I don't want to invest in a massage or whatever it was. And I think the deeper layer was like, I'm not worthy enough. I have to work really, really hard to be able to say that, oh yeah, let me buy myself a massage or buy this healing session or whatever the case was. And I hope today's conversation really opened your eyes to the power of investment, the power of transformation. And if you're a coach or a business owner or anything, understanding pricing and not trading dollars for time, but actually the transformation and experience that your clients are going through. I know personally, that was actually an excellent reminder for me, and I really needed that. So make sure you guys go follow Samantha. If you love this episode, then you're definitely going to love her podcast, Makeshift Happen. And again, I was on that podcast. The episode title is The Unsexy Side of Entrepreneurship. You all know I love to peel the layers back behind the scenes and get pretty transparent. So we had a really fun conversation on her podcast. And be sure to check her out, samanthadaily.com and at underscore samanthadaily on Instagram. And you know where to find me at Chelsea Rife, ChelseaRife.com. And if you leave a rating and review, you will be submitted into a giveaway to win a Notion podcast launch plan. Again, this says everything you need to launch a podcast, planning sections, video tutorials, checklists, walkthroughs. Honestly, I give this to my one-on-one clients and a lot of them are like, yeah, I actually feel like I could launch a podcast just from having this document. So If you want to win that, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot, send it to info at ChelseaRife.com or at ChelseaRife on Instagram, and you'll be entered into that giveaway, which I will pull at the end of March. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned. We have another episode coming this Friday, and don't forget about the Masterclass tomorrow, How to Launch a Podcast with Strategy and Soul, link in my show notes, and I'll talk to you guys soon.